Welcome to episode 45 of the Montana Values Podcast. In this show, we're having ourselves a revival and connecting the dots between Montana's copper kings of yesteryear and our politicians of today. So grab your hanky and clutch your pearls as we join our host, Tammy Fisher. But first, a housekeeping issue. Thank you very much to our loyal listener, Nance, from southeastern Connecticut. She enjoys the show and she supports the show and she is sponsoring today's show. And we thank her for her support. Thanks, Nance. Yeah, thanks, Nance. We sure appreciate all of you that continue to support us in this kind of this venture of ours to educate all Montanans on what our values are and share with you what we think our values are and also get your feedback on what you believe our Montana values are and how we can best explore them and promote them. All of us Montanans have been educated in significant Montana history. It's part and parcel of every Montana kid's curriculum beginning in about fourth grade. Most of us remember what we were taught about Montana history because Montana is a small state. We are fiercely loyal to the state, and we hope to learn from the sins of the past so that we have a better future for our kids. I was born in Great Falls, Montana, and have lived all over the state. Great Falls, Glasgow, Sealy Lake, Missoula, Kalispell, and I even went to Sims High School. The great thing about Montana is we are small enough that we all know each other. We all have at least one personal or family connection to one another, and we have the tie that binds by virtue of just being Montanan. So today, for those listeners who haven't been Montana educated, we are going to take you on a trip down Montana's history lane. Butte may be the most popular city in Montana. I have coveted Butte for many years and have often thought that if I didn't live in the Flathead, I'd live in Butte. The history of Butte binds all Montanans. It's known for its mining history in particular and for being the original melting pot of Montana. Folks from every nation and color came to Butte in pursuit of a better life, mostly spent working in the copper and silver mines. My family members from Butte are a solid split of Irish and Italian, and we celebrate those heritages annually with a family pasty and ravioli day where we make so many pasties and so much ravioli that we'll need a day of cooking and lots of wine to get us our fill for the whole year. We love our heritage so much that when I married my late husband, John, our reception food was limited to pasties, ravioli, and booze. That's it. Oh, yeah, and some cake. Butte is known for many super cool historical happenings, and it is also known for the Copper Kings. So who were the Copper Kings? Newcomers to Montana have heard the term, but probably don't know just how much Montana was influenced by the Copper Kings through their wallets, in their politics, and in the development of Montana's employment laws. I would say that the two topics Montanans most remember from Montana history are learning about our native Montana Indian population and the Copper Kings. They really have had that much influence on us. Montana has had three Copper Kings, William A. Clark, Marcus Daly, and F. Augustus Hines. We're going to focus on William A. Clark. Clark was born in Connellsville, Pennsylvania. He moved with his family to Iowa in 1856, where he taught school and studied law at Iowa Wesleyan College. In 1862, he traveled west to become a minor. That's a weird transition to study law and then decide to become a minor. That tells you how valued lawyers were in the day. After working in quartz mines in Colorado during 1863, Clark made his way to new gold fields to find his fortune in the Montana gold rush. He settled in the capital of Montana Territory, which was Bannock, Montana. 
and began placer mining. Clark quickly found that he could make more money selling things to miners than he could mining himself and made the beginnings of his fortune shipping goods to Bannock from Salt Lake City. From trading, he went into banking, diversifying his professions. He became a banker in Deer Lodge, Montana. He repossessed mining properties when owners defaulted on their loans, placing him in the mining industry. And from there, he went to the silver mines of Butte. In the Butte silver mines, he had an early competitor in the form of Marcus Daly. An Irish immigrant, Daly moved from Salt Lake to Butte in 1876 to work as the agent for the Walter Brothers Mining Company. By the end of the 1870s, the silver was drying up in Butte and many mines were closing down. Daly, however, a skilled geologist and engineer, knew that Butte held enormous loads of copper ore and sensed that, because of Edison's recent invention of the light bulb, the world was ripe for a copper boom. So he quietly bought up the Anaconda and surrounding mines and in the 1880s launched the Anaconda Mining Company, which initiated the copper boom and turned Butte into the richest hill on earth. Daly and Clark were fierce competitors vying for supremacy for the next 20 years. They both held interests not just in mining, but also in railroads, manufacturing, and lumber in Montana and across the U.S. Daly even created a town, Anaconda, to support his smelter outside of Butte. Clark made a fortune with copper mining, small smelters, electric power companies, newspapers, railroads, trolley lines around Butte, and the San Pedro, Los Angeles, and Salt Lake Railroad from Salt Lake City, Utah, to San Pedro and Los Angeles, California. And he also had other businesses. He built a spectacular recreational area called Columbia Gardens near Butte, and in 1905, he built a rest stop, Las Vegas, to service the desert route of his Los Angeles to Salt Lake Railroad. Clark County, where Vegas is located, is named after William A. Clark. Yet, despite Clark's monumental professional accomplishments, he is hardly remembered outside of Montana. And if so, it's as the man who bought a seat in the United States Senate. Montana didn't become a state until 1889, long after Clark and Daly settled here. After becoming a state, the next item on the political agenda for Clark was to obtain a seat in the United States Senate. He really wanted to be our first senator. So think about it, kids. Do you think Clark was just an ambitious guy? What was his motivation? Greed through obtaining enormous sums of money? Competition between he and a foe the likes of Daly? Or power? which incorporates money because we all know money buys power and influence. Why would a super rich dude want to get into politics when politics pays a pittance in comparison to his vast wealth? He wasn't a very likable guy. Most folks thought that while he was skilled in business and wealth creation, he was kind of a jerk to be around. And his character was monumentally flawed. So if you can't win elections based upon character and personality, how else do you win elections? Money. So power is obtained via money, and this is exactly where Clark's intentions became known. Don't get us wrong. Clark did provide Butte workers with jobs, but his employment practices were so bad that they led to the unionization of virtually all of Butte. He worked his employees to the bone, never paying overtime, providing few days off, and a pittance for the work. The work was dangerous, and regard for minor injuries and deaths was minimal. 
So Clark knew he was unlikable as a human, but he had the power of the purse. And he used his purse to obtain power by owning the local newspaper and therefore dictating its pro-Clark and his business ventures content, paying off government mine safety inspectors, and finally buying off state legislators. The first example of Clark's use of his money to obtain political power outside of Butte was in 1890. Clark was a Democrat and was a Democratic senatorial candidate in Montana in all but one legislative session between 1888 and 1901. He spent 12 years in zeal to obtain political power. This may sound familiar to some of you who have watched the recent races in Montana. How many years has Greg Gianforte sought to influence politics in Montana by obtaining power through the influence of money? What about Troy Downing? Matt Rosendale? In 1890, Clark tried to buy his way into the United States Senate seat in order to become Montana's first senator. Back then, the United States Senate seats were obtained by the vote of the state legislature. So we didn't have to buy every Montanan's vote, just a majority of the state legislators. But his attempts to obtain power through money failed in the first go-round. Kind of like when Governor Gianforte failed in his first run for governor in 2016. Yeah, seems similar. The state's first two senators, Wilbur Sanders and Thomas C. Power, were sworn into office on April 16, 1890, following a hotly contested election. No one ever talks about Sanders' defeat of Clark, and nobody probably even remembers who Sanders was, which is a shame. Because once you hear his background, you may understand why the legislators chose Sanders over Clark. Wilbur Sanders was born in New York. He was a school teacher who eventually studied law. Sanders gained admission to the bar in 1856. He served in the Civil War and then moved to Montana. He was a young lawyer when he moved to Bannock, Montana in 1863. He was there before courts were organized and, being one of the first permanent settlers, took a prominent part in bringing law in order to Montana. He was a prosecutor for the infamous Montana vigilantes who took the law into their own hands after over 100 men had been ambushed and murdered for their gold in Virginia City, Montana. In his career as an attorney, Sanders gained a reputation for representing minority defendants, including Chinese and Indians. In 1873, Sanders became a member of the territorial legislature. Also, he realized the importance of preserving early records and was for 30 years the president of the Montana Historical Society, established in 1865. He accumulated newspapers and documents in his law office. Sanders was a founding member of the Society of Montana Pioneers and served as its secretary in 1884 and president in 1888. He was a Republican candidate for election in 1864, 1867, 1880, and 1886 as a United States representative and was a member of the Territorial House of Representatives of Montana from 1873 to 1879. Upon the admission of Montana as a state into the Union, he was elected as a Republican to the U.S. Senate and served from January 1, 1890 to March 3, 1893. While in the Senate, he was chairman of the Committee of Enrolled Bills in the 52nd Congress. Even after serving in the United States Senate, Sanders went back to practicing law and represented the Chinese community in Butte, Montana, against labor unions boycotting Chinese businesses. Sanders died in Helena, Montana at 71 
and was interred at Forest Vale Cemetery there. Sanders County, Montana, is named in his honor. So he sounds like a likable guy, right? A great Republican, completely qualified for the United States Senate, upheld and valued the rule of law, and seems to have fought for the little guy throughout his life. Contrast Sanders with Clark, and you can see why Montana chose Sanders despite Clark's financial influence. Undaunted, after losing to Sanders, Clark continued to devote the full measure of his extensive economic and political power to achieving his goal. Enormous sums of money changed hands in Montana as Clark and his chief rival, Anaconda Company copper magnate Marcus Daly, sought to influence the economic structure of the state, the location of the capital, the direction of democratic politics, and the selection of a United States senator. In 1894, the new state of Montana tried to name a state capital. Daly petitioned for Anaconda, but Clark, knowing that Anaconda would put the capital entirely in Daly's pocket, supported Helena's bid. Helena eventually gained the title in a highly controversial election, and both Clark and Daly became uniquely aware of their respective abilities to influence virtually every aspect of Montana life. As Clark's political influence continued to climb, he made another run for the Senate. Politics in Montana by that point had gotten really ugly. In fact, when Sanders ran for re-election, he didn't win. And the Montana legislature just let the Senate seat sit empty for several years with only one senator representing the state in Congress. It was goofy and reflected a pendulum shift in Montana politics. So for like three years, our Montana legislature was such a shit show, they failed to elect anyone to that Senate seat. But Clark continued to rise in power, and he got the votes he needed by 1899 to become a U.S. senator. The problem was, he bought the votes. As the U.S. Senate historical record tells us, Nine years after his initial disappointment in 1890, William Clark won the Senate seat he so avidly desired, presenting his credentials on December 4, 1899. The Senate admitted him immediately although on the same day his opponents filed a petition charging that Clark had secured his election through bribery. The memorial asserted that Clark had spent far more on his election than the $2,000 permitted by an 1895 Montana law aimed at controlling political corruption. The Senate referred the matter to the Committee on Privileges and Elections, which quickly asked for and received authorization to conduct a full investigation into Clark's election. On April 23, 1900, after hearing extensive testimony from 96 witnesses, the committee returned a report unanimously concluding that William Clark was not entitled to his seat. The testimony detailed a dazzling list of bribes ranging from $240 to $100,000 in a high-pressure, well-organized scheme coordinated by Clark's son, Clark's agents had paid mortgages, purchased ranches, paid debts, financed banks, and blatantly presented envelopes of cash to legislators. In addition, the winning margin in Clark's election had been secured by the votes of 11 Republican legislators under suspicious circumstances. Clark did not enhance his position when he admitted that he had destroyed all of his personal checks that dealt with campaign transactions. The committee cited a number of previous bribery cases, especially that of Samuel C. Pomeroy and Alexander Caldwell in 1872 to 1873, 
as precedents for declaring an election void if bribery on behalf of the winner could be proved, even if no proof was found that the candidate knew of the actions. The report also noted the precedent from the Pomeroy case that if the winner, quote, clearly participated in any one act of bribery or attempted bribery, he should be deprived of his office, even if the result of the election was not thereby changed, end quote. While concurring in the committee's conclusion, two members tried to reduce the impact of the anti-Clark testimony by pointing to the unlimited sums that his rival Marcus Daly had invested in an effort to block Clark's election. That observation, however, did little more than confirm the way in which the corruption totally pervaded Montana politics without exonerating Clark. On May 15, 1900, as the Senate prepared to vote on Clark's right to retain his seat, the beleaguered senator rose to speak. Predictably, Clark complained about the procedures of the committee, the admissions and omissions of evidence, and the machinations of Marcus Daly. He contended that the Senate had lost sight of the principle of presumption of innocence and concluded that the committee had not shown that bribery sufficient to alter the election results had occurred. At the conclusion of his remarks, Clark, clearly aware that he did not have the necessary votes to keep his seat, resigned. This did not conclude the Montana case, for on May 15th, the acting governor of Montana immediately appointed Clark to fill the Senate vacancy the seat Clark had just resigned from. When the governor learned of this action on his return to the state three days later, he telegraphed the Senate that Martin McGinnis would fill the Clark vacancy. Credentials for both Clark and McGinnis were presented to the Senate, which ordered them to lie on the table. So the Senate seat was again vacant. In January 1901, a newly elected Montana legislature, in which most of the winning candidates had received financial support from William Clark, elected him to the Senate for the same term he had filled earlier. Marcus Daly had died in November 1900, and this time no charges of corruption were raised. On March 4, 1901, Clark appeared at the U.S. Senate and was seated without objection. In this case, the Privileges and Elections Committee stressed that the Senate had a duty to itself and to the country to demonstrate by its action that senators cannot retain seats procured by corruption. It also saw an equal duty to Montana because the state had adopted the 1895 law in an effort to end corruption in its elections. So other than these very interesting facts about the corruption in Montana politics at the time, Clark also had a goofy as hell personal life that had a high ick factor. Listen to this account from Variety magazine. To the shock and astonishment of his friends, colleagues and the general public, in 1904, Senator William Clark announced that he had remarried in France in 1901 to Anna LaChapelle a woman younger than his children from his first marriage. Interestingly, no record of a marriage exists, and at the time he publicly proclaimed the marriage, he also revealed he and his new wife already had a two-year-old daughter. Most people believe the story of the 1901 marriage was a fabrication to cover having a child out of marriage, a potentially damaging situation for the senator from Montana. Mrs. Clark, nay LaChapelle, was originally some sort of teenage ward that Mr. Clark took under his wing, supported and educated, and then allegedly married. 
At the time, Senator Clark claimed they were married. He was still a virile 62 and she a nubile 23. Ugh, that's so gross. <laughs> it's gross. Anyway, William Clark, having finally achieved his great ambition, served a whopping one term as United States Senator. He retired from the Senate in 1907, and by that time, he had left Montana. He went back to New York to build an extravagant 121-room mansion on Fifth Avenue in New York City. He died in 1925 and is buried in New York City. You see, Montana was never Clark's home. He was just a visitor here. So when some of us Montanans are skeptical of -of out-of-state rich folks moving here and then seeking elected office, well, now you know why. We have been taken advantage of before. What Montanans remember out-of-state carpetbaggers like Clark for is his corruption, his creation of wealth on the backs of Montana miners, his disregard for the working conditions of his employees, and his manipulation of Montanans for personal gain. And wanting to dictate how we think and act is a sure sign of a politician of William Clark's ilk. How many current politicians in Montana are Montanans? With this history lesson, can you think of any current elected officials that have followed Clark's path? Can you think of anyone currently holding office that manipulates Montanans for personal gain? Anyone who has obtained elected office by the power of the purse versus persuasion, leadership, and good character? Has Montana learned from its history? Or are we repeating the mistakes of the past? Thank you for taking us with you on your journey today. And we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Montana Values Podcast. Consider sponsoring the show by going to our website, montanavaluespodcast.com locating the sponsor page and clicking on the donate button. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at MTValues. Find us on Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. What's your favorite Montana value? How do you live it? Write to us. Our email address is montanavaluespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.